Welcome back to DC EKG with myself, Joe Grogan, and my good friend, Eric Uland. We are recording a remote edition or an audio-only edition this week so we can discuss uh, goings-on on Capitol Hill, not only in healthcare, but all the different machinations. But before we get into that, we want to thank our uh, team at Big Wig Media and Evergreen for helping make this podcast possible. But most significantly, Survivors for Solutions, run by our good friend and producer, John C.Z. Swartaki. John is uh, not only a great communicator and communication specialist, uh, with many years in Washington, D.C., providing support to some of the most successful and famous members of the conservative and Republican movement, but he's also a advocate for new therapies and treatments and the biopharmaceutical ecosystem that he and so many patients like him depend on. He's been very upfront about the fact that he himself has MS and the treatments that he takes have allowed him to build a full and vibrant family and have a successful career uh, throughout the past few decades. And without those treatments, he would uh, not be with us. So We thank John for his support with Survivors for Solutions, and we're going to get right into it with Eric, because Eric, uh, you know, we could have a guest, but why would you bring a guest on when you've got Eric Uland, who forgets uh, more about the goings-on in the Senate before breakfast than most people learn all year? Now I'm in trouble. So, Uland, let's get into it. Uh, We're back. Summer break is over. Big news this past week is uh, there was some debris. Well, the big news is constantly there's this undercurrent of McCarthy stability as speaker because his margin is so thin. But he comes out this week and he says he's opening an impeachment inquiry. Can you describe a little bit of what's going on in the House with McCarthy and how he's trying to maintain power, but also keep his his uh, team moving in the direction and avoiding a government shutdown because the House has to pass spending bills, but also get some conservative wins. Yeah, so tall order for the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy from California, and all the House Republicans when they came back to work last week. And it's unclear yet whether or not they're going to be successful, Joe, to your point, in all steering in the same direction. So, McCarthy announced that the House will be launching an impeachment inquiry. He did this on its own authority. This is something a speaker can do. It ensures at that point that there are resources and staff available to fully investigate, in this case, the family of President Biden, the activities of he, his brothers, his son over many years, and to ascertain whether or not there are potential problems here that rise to the threshold of an impeachable offense or a set of impeachable offenses. So there are a couple of committees in the House, one oversight investigations run by Jim Comer from Kentucky, the other, the House Judiciary Committee run by Jim Jordan from Ohio that will be spending the next few months taking testimony, investigating witnesses, subpoenaing information, talking with and looking at material from the Internal Revenue Service, uh, examining bank records, uh, taking a look at what 
the Department of Treasury uh, has said over the years about a lot of transactions that uh, the Biden family has been involved in, all with an eye to seeing whether or not from the House's perspective, the House majority's perspective, there are offenses which rise to level impeachment. And if so, then decide what's the best path forward. Do you have hearings? Do you take public testimony? Do you draft articles of impeachment? Do you take those to the House floor and see if there's a simple majority ultimately to pass those? So that's the first prong of Kevin McCarthy's work uh, in the House. The second, to your point, is seeing whether or not you can assemble a House majority behind something, anything, package of legislation that might ensure discretionary spending continues after September 30th. This is the government shutdown. Question about whether or not there are a combination of key policies that House Republicans, House conservatives would like, as well as a minimally appropriate level of spending for all the discretionary spending programs we have in the government and see whether or not those things can uh, actually make it through the House. It was a tough week okay, uh, wait. for House Republicans. Wait, wait. Yeah. Wait, it was, it was a tough week? I'm sorry, I was going to interrupt you. I was just saying, say, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very tough week on this because the House Republicans have no unanimity of opinion about what it is that they want to do yet. Are there policies that conservatives can support that would allow them to turn and be able to support a four, a five, a six-week extension at a minimal levels of the discretionary spending for the federal government? Um, as last week ended, House Republicans were trying to see whether or not they could combine uh, what's called a continuing resolution, that minimum amount of spending, along with perhaps border-related policies and dealing with some of the domestic disaster spending that as a result of fires in Hawaii, fires out west, natural disasters, hurricanes, and, and other storms here this summer um, that are necessary to have federal resources put for remediation, cleanup, and assistance to those who've been affected by those those disasters. Okay, and we'll see okay, how it hold goes. Hold on a second. Yeah, hold on a second. Let's. We're, I want to get into this spending bills issue and and what the the machinations around that. But let's go back to impeachment for one second. So yeah, before McCarthy makes this announcement, um, there there's you know there's this question of whether or not Republicans are willing to take this plunge. And there's all this talk about he doesn't have the votes to open an impeachment inquiry. Now, you said the speaker has the authority to open up an impeachment inquiry. So uh, on his own and doesn't need the vote. Um, what's the significance of it? I mean, they already have oversight teams, some of which, you know, people you and I know who are working on various investigations what does the what does this announcement from a practical perspective actually mean? Does it mean it means they do they hire more staff? Are they set up to actually do this investigation or is this theater? It's not theater. It regularizes the various processes that have been underway in the multiple, at least two, if not three House committees, provides some organization and order works to orient all the committees to work in concert and cooperatively, allows the House, these committees, and then ultimately the House to consider whether or not to issue subpoenas, in other words, demand 
information from the president, his family, banks, and the like, um, and increases the weight of the demands that will come from the House to various pieces of the federal government for information. So, for example, as mentioned earlier, bank records from the Department of Treasury, tax information from the Internal Revenue Service. So it's right. a step okay, along wait. the escalating process here for conducting an impeachment process. Right. So you you obviously were in the Trump administration during uh, impeachment. You were in the Senate for Clinton's impeachment, correct? Correct. Yes. So you've seen this from both sides. Now, um, are did McCarthy do this on his own as part? Is it linked to the budget stuff? Is he trying to shore up conservative support for his speakership and buy himself a little bit of time to help in the end of the year spending bill negotiations? Because I want to get into this tough week stuff that you were just alluding to, uh, because the reporting was that he had a couple people launch on him in meetings and he lost his temper. But are they linked? Or, and is that why he did it on his own and didn't put it to a vote? So the answer on linkage is they're not linked. They're not linked politically. They're not linked for internal House Republican conference management. And they're certainly not linked when it comes to the question of what actually happens. Impeachment and the work of the committees, can an impeachment inquiry, an impeachment investigation can continue regardless of what happens with federal spending. Since after all, uh, everybody in Congress will declare themselves essential workers and have to show up every day for work, regardless of whether or not the rest of the government's funded. But in terms of, of the, the spending issue and the frustrations inside House Republicans, yeah, there's a lot of tension, a lot of antagonism. Don't forget the House was gone for six weeks in August and the first half of September. They hadn't been together for a while, but they've been working and talking with their constituents Everybody came back in town to ask, hey, what's the plan? And when they came back to the House, there was no plan that a majority of House Republicans would support. So you can argue about the mechanics of how you come up with a plan, but a lot of members very passionate on the spending issue, very frustrated that so far they have not found a path forward to be able to fight on behalf of lower spending, controlled spending, minimal spending, and looking to right. the Speaker and the House Republican leadership for ideas and plans and what they thought they heard from the House Speaker and, and their leadership was a plan that they couldn't support. The idea that, okay, right. we will sp- keep spending at President Biden's levels wait, wait, from wait, wait, the wait, previous back year. Up, back up, yeah. back up. I got to stop you. Okay. Before we get into what this fight is about, can you quantify the the numbers for for McCarthy? Like how thin? It, just to remind people, yeah. how many? What, what kind of majority are we working with here right now? What are the the actual numbers House uh, for Republicans Democrats right now? So right now the House has two hundred and twenty one Republican members. It requires two hundred and eighteen a simple majority of the House to do anything. In addition to 221 members, he has three, four, or five members every day who are out for a variety of reasons. Health, recovering from surgery, uh, a new, new parents, 
um, a senior member of his House Republican leadership who's going through cancer treatment and won't be around on a day-to-day basis as his chemotherapy unfolds. That so you're talking whether about Scalise, even as, you're yes, talking about number, Scalise, number two in the House, who's no yeah, uh, right, his no, House Majority uh, Leader and and his partner uh, and significant partner in rounding up votes uh, because right, Mr. Very, Scalise very has well both respected. right trust and respect of all the various factions of the House Republicans in a way that's that's kind of unique for the House Republican leadership. So so he's got to make sure every day that are there 218 of my House Republicans even in town to make the place work, much less can I develop a consensus of 218 House Republicans around something or anything on discretionary spending with the September 30th deadline, the end of the fiscal year, staring him in the face. Right. Okay. So now this whole fight to the uninitiated about spending, I think it would have been easy to excuse people to say that it snuck up on them. I thought this fight occurred in the spring and a deal was cut for spending levels. Why is it coming up again? What is the controversy? I thought there was a deal between the House, the Senate, and the Biden White House. Why is there a new kerfuffle around end of the year spending and the possibility of a government shutdown? The spending deal cut earlier this year, you're absolutely right, seemed to set an an overall amount for discretionary spending for the next couple of fiscal years. But both sides looked at that deal from different perspectives. For Democrats in the White House, President Biden, his team, and Senate Democrats, they saw that overall discretionary spending number as a floor. House Republicans saw that overall discretionary spending number as a ceiling. That, that, that in essence, you can spend up to that amount, but you can certainly spend less. And again, Democrats, that's where we're going to start spending. And then we're going to work hard to see if there are other ways we can add extra spending on top of it. So there's been a goal that's been developing for the past few months that now finally is coming to a point because there's this September 30th deadline, the end of the fiscal year, the time when discretionary spending authority runs out. And for about 15 percent of what the federal government funds, there would be no activity after October 1st. Now, things like your Social Security checks, your Medicare payments, the operations of the Department of Defense, those aren't interrupted or stopped when there's a pause in discretionary appropriations. But there will be other things that won't be funded and there will not be operations based on how government shutdowns have been working for the past 40 years. So you can't like go to a national what? park. A national park will be closed. Interior. That's not fair. I love the national closed. parks. Hey, everybody loves the national parks. So things like that, um, you will see federal operations pause if there's not some way to continue minimal spending after September 30th. That's what's really consuming the House Republicans right now as they see if there's some sort of package they can put together to pick a path forward. In contradiction, over on the Senate side, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans have unified around treating that fiscal deal from earlier this year as the level 
against which they're going to move discretionary spending bills if they can. So they're trying to jumpstart the spending process and see whether or not there's a way forward on the bills that have already been put forward in front of the Senate. And we'll see how that unfolds here over the next couple of weeks, too. A minor complication for Kevin, but still something that he's got to keep an eye on. So net net, we are building towards a moment at the end of the month to see whether or not the House, the Senate and the White House can come to some sort of minimally dissatisfactory compromise where federal government operations across the board continue for some amount of time. Or as I said, about 15 percent of that spending goes away and operations of the federal government in those areas cease. And that's that's mostly what's going to consume Kevin McCarthy's time between now and the end of September. But this is going to be a predominant story all this fall. For those who have taken a look at statistics in the past about how long it takes the federal government on average to actually work out these things, it's a little over 137 days. So a little over four months on average for the federal government when it gets into a jam like this to actually work out all the kinks, all the controversies, all the complications, and to see whether or not it can actually come up with spending bills that a House, a, a Senate, and a White House can actually support and get signed into law. So we've got a long, long, long way to go on this story and many more twists and turns before perhaps it finally gets solved at some point as long as the first quarter of next year, calendar 2024. So what about in healthcare for specifically? What's at stake uh, for those of us who are cursed to care about healthcare? Great question. And the September 30th deadline, as you point out, isn't only for discretionary spending, but there are a variety of programs whose authorities will cease at the end of the fiscal year, too, because of separate decisions made over the past several years. In the health space, there's a variety of substance abuse and mental health programs whose authorities go away at the end of September, as well, the reduced rate that states have been having to pay for certain Medicaid patients will go away and they're going to have to pay a higher amount of the share that states must cover for significant populations of Medicaid eligible patients in their states. So that uh, funding, that was a consequence of COVID that increased Medicaid reimbursement and the economic. Yes. So, right. As the COVID and bills even though and policies President, worked through. Yeah, right. And President Biden declared, you know, the pandemic's over. So why wouldn't those numbers, why wouldn't those numbers come down anyway, Eric? Is it because once you put a state on the dole, it's very difficult to unwind that. And there are Republican and Democratic governors calling Capitol Hill saying, we need this money. The economy isn't what we'd like. We have financial problems too. Don't shut off this bigot. Uh, we need the money. Fair? Joe, you took the words right out of my mouth. You pretty well summarized the, the lobbying going out from states right now. Depending on whose estimates you believe, this is as much as $8 billion that certain states are going to have to pony up in the next couple of years to, to cover more fully their share of what they're responsible for, for their Medicaid patients, that health care that's provided to lower income individuals. And we'll see how that works out. But there are a lot of congressional Republicans who oppose continuing this policy that's been in effect for the past couple of years. 
Right. Um, and then just as an aside, or maybe not an aside, I mean, we, we need to revisit at some point we should do another discussion around the addiction and mental health crisis because CDC just came out with numbers where over 110,000 overdose deaths in the United States, uh, not a pretty picture. They continue to climb. It was, what was it, two years ago? Was it 18 months ago we did a podcast and we um, we were talking about how I thought it was going to go over 100 and sure enough, now we're at 110. Casey Mulligan's been great on this. But of course, there are so many people out there that are great. Um, one thing you have to question at this point is whether or not we're doing the right things with all this federal money, including the federal money that'll get cut off at, at the end of September. I mean, I think it's time to question some fundamental assumptions, but we can revisit that conversation uh, with some experts down the road. Would love to do that because you're absolutely right. It, it occurs to me this year is the 50th anniversary of the release of all the prisoners of war held by North Vietnam during the, the Vietnam conflict. And that Vietnam War cost the lives of about 58,000 Americans over a significant number of years. That's dwarfed by the annual death rate of the crisis that's unfolding right in front of our eyes and a conversation and a deeper dive to both look at assumptions, see what's most effective and explore changes to uh, federal policy are key because under President Trump, who both of us worked for and, and you had spearheaded this, really innovated and drove policies that for the first time drove that death number down we were having right. success uh, prior to the pandemic and the, the complete upending of the sort of policies that seem to be much more effective in tackling this crisis. Right, right. Yeah, we got, we've got to revisit that conversation. It's good you reminded us about the tremendous sacrifices of the POWs as well. Um, some great books about that and not enough Americans. Each passing year, fewer and fewer Americans understand what those guys went through with um, the tremendous suffering they endured at the hands of the North Vietnamese. That, that would be an interesting conversation um, down the road for a whole host of reasons. Of course, a number of them came back with tremendous health problems, but mental health problems uh, too, because they were brutalized and tortured uh, to such an extreme extent. So, but that's for another conversation uh, that we got to figure out. For right now, I did notice one thing that intrigued me. After McCarthy opens this impeachment inquiry, makes this unilateral decision, doesn't put it up to a vote, lo and behold, who materializes on CNN but Nancy Pelosi? Now, Nancy Pelosi, uh, I think we would both agree, is the most effective speaker of our lifetimes, uh, certainly our professional lifetimes, just ran that place like a machine rammed through stuff on partisan votes, kept that caucus, the Democratic, fractious Democratic caucus uh, together to get real big uh, victories for the progressive liberal agenda, tremendous expansion of government. We should have a conversation about her legacy at some point. But boom, she pops up on CNN. She's been relatively quiet and she attacks McCarthy and starts talking with Anderson Cooper about how tenuous his speakership is, he's not really 
uh, in control. He's taking remote control orders from Trump, you know, the usual uh, accusations. But I, what I thought was interesting about this is my perception is maybe the Democrats are nervous or the Biden White House just called Pelosi up and said, please get out there and defend us. Nobody's more effective than you because she's been relatively quiet since she gave up the speakership to Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, I don't know if you saw that interview, but what's your perception of that? Has this impeachment inquiry shot a tremor of nervousness into the Biden White House and the Democratic caucus in a way that maybe um, uh, is not being reported by the media? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I think you're right. Put your thumb on it. She is their go-to advocate, defender, in some cases, the best voice they have out there on behalf of the president. And I don't doubt but that the coordination between the White House and the former speaker was pretty high. But this week was tremor making, not just because the impeachment inquiry was opened by the speaker, but the cacophony of voices on the left Democratic side exploring the concept of Joe Biden leaving, not running again for reelection, has only gotten louder also over the past six weeks. Whether it's a prominent columnist in the Washington Post, David Ignatius, saying it's time for her to, to time for him, I should say, to wrap it up and hang it up, uh, and Kamala Harris as well, um, to a variety of left voices who are very prominent, uh, former Bernie Sanders supporters and the like, saying that it's time for fresh leadership. The very aggressive constant demurral from Gavin Newsom, uh, governor of California on Sacramento, saying, no, really, I'm not running for president. Yeah, uh, he's, to, right? rarely have you seen yeah. somebody salivate over the opportunity to run. Um, and actually, that I think that would be a great national debate if Gavin Newsom did run. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I think it would be big issue. I mean, you uh, right, and you'd be able to rip the mask off on the left's agenda and what liberals would really want, given both Newsom's record, his committed public policy statements, and where the entire party would stand up and start yelling on behalf of him and, and what he wants to do. I think it would be a great conservative, liberal, left, right, Republican, Democrat throwdown but versus Biden, who, in addition to all his challenges, attempts to put a more modest and moderate face on what's a really pretty radical approach here that's been taken over the past three years. But this Washington. is time's running out for him, right? I mean, uh, uh, you're not you're you can't uh, wait until the first quarter of next year. You're absolutely right. There's a series of filing deadlines in states that begin to hit this fall. If you want to run for president, your party needs to declare that you are actually a candidate to get you on the ballot for primaries and caucuses in the run up to the general election next year. So the, those clocks start hitting midnight uh, in states to mix a few metaphors um, beginning next month, and then they accelerate over the next few months. So if there's going to be a serious change at the top of the Democratic ticket, they need to make the call sooner rather than later. Now, I know some people say that, nope, he can wait. And then it's up to the Democratic National Committee or the Democratic Convention next summer to make a change. 
that is structurally really challenging and it's harder. It's not impossible. Don't right. necessarily disagree with these people. It's just a lot easier for Democrats. And again, you notice the volume of this discussion on the left and amongst Democrats about whether or not there should be a change bumping up here over the past several weeks. That's partly due to these deadlines out there. Right, right. And there has been a little bit more reporting about uh, Biden gaffes, Biden uh, mental acuity, uh, lacking mental acuity, let me say, uh, indications of advanced age, maybe some, you know, the falls. Interestingly, I'm not necessarily believing that there's been a ramp up over the last, uh, over the first year. But it's just that the media is more willing to report on some of them as opposed to cover them up. Uh, I don't know if that's your perception as well, but it seems to be there's more of a more clamoring in the ecosystem as Trump's numbers are going up and Biden continues to look frail that uh, the Democrat there's a number of Democrat activists who are getting nervous. Yeah, absolutely the case. And to your point on um, President Trump, not only do his numbers keep going up as well, he keeps laying out significant policies and ideas that are popular and, and very well supported. So his method of campaigning, which involves a lot of good in-person appearances, combined with significant presentations, you know, these two, three, four minute videos, on various policy ideas, whether it's healthcare, education, what to do in the future for our cities, how to handle crime, all that's going down very well. And it's much more popular than anything President Biden or the left have put on the table here over the past three years. Right, right. Okay, and then on the Senate side, let's just talk about this for a minute. Mitt Romney announced his retirement. Um Obviously, he had been the Republican presidential candidate candidate at one point. Now he's been more of an outlier, I would say, in the Republican Party movement, uh, which happened pretty quick, to be honest, when you think about the fact that he ran not too long ago against President Obama and lost. But uh, and then you have people talking about Joe Manchin retiring, uh, who has a record of crossing over. What's your take on the Senate impending retirements, uh, Romney's retirement? Any observations about any of this? Yeah, so great point. There are a series of retirement decisions yet to come. So West Virginia with Manchin. What happens in Arizona with Kirsten Cinema? Why would she retire again? She's well. Wait, she seems young. She seems like she was to outward appearances. It looked like she was having fun and engaged. I mean, I know she frustrates the left, but why are is the, are they just starting up that rumor to get her to make it yeah, or is she really unhappy? Well, there is some unhappiness. Look, and of course, every senator is unhappy at some point. Don't get me wrong. Heck, every House member at some point along the way. Uh, but the question of whether or not she wants to retire is inextricably linked with the perplexing politics of Arizona in a three-way race. So She declared that she's going to be an independent last winter. In the meantime, there's a left progressive candidate in the Democratic primary who has announced. And as well, it appears that Carrie Lake 
is going to announce on the Republican side for the Senate GOP primary out there. So three-way race Even though she lost, shaping she up. Blew, she, and she lost the governor's race last time. Uh, and now she's- There remain uh, open and, questions about ballot behavior in Maricopa, but she is moving on at least to this race, it appears. So yeah. three-way race, whether or not it's the best thing to go through that, um, you know, public polling is all over the map. Uh, I'm sure her private- private numbers are confusing as well. Um, so she just has to decide whether or not she wants to do more broadly in the event that we get through, you know, the next couple of months and senators make their final decisions about whether or not to run again. The table seems set pretty strongly for Republicans in 2024 for the Senate, regaining their majority. I mean, you start with key states, Montana, Democratic incumbent, very weak, uh, strong Republican challenger, Ohio, Democrat incumbent, very weak, strong uh, Republican primary, where all any of the three candidates uh, would start out ahead of, of the Democratic incumbent. West Virginia, as you mentioned, um, Senator Manchin significantly behind uh, the most popular Republican opponent um, that's likely to be put up there, the current governor, Jim Justice. Uh, so you just start with those three states likely flipping from Democrat to Republican, you're looking at a majority outcome on election night for the Senate GOP. The House can hang on to its GOP majority, maybe build it a little bit, and whoever the Republican nominee is, probably President Trump, um, win, then we once again would be in a very strong position in 2025 for smart, America first, popular policies that, that actually would move the needle on behalf of the American people. All right. Well, uh, I think we're almost out of time. I think uh, it's probably a good place to end there. Just one little statistic. We didn't get into it, but uh, we just had a recent announcement that the national deficit this year will surpass $2 trillion. That's not the debt. That's the deficit. That's just this calendar year. Spending money that we don't have $2 trillion. So maybe some type of directional change can get our spending house in order and uh, not keep us hurtling towards national bankruptcy. But we will we will see about that as we move forward. Any final topic for. Yeah, I was going to say that'd be a great topic for a future cast as well. But um, in the meantime, I agree with you. Um, (laughs) This direction is ominous. It bids fair to uh, get even worse in the next couple of years. We need to grow our economy. We need to make sure that uh, we've got as many great people in great jobs as possible. Uh, The Trump blue collar boom needs to be brought back. We need to accelerate our energy production. We need to accelerate um, the growth of our gross domestic product. We need to make sure that in every way and every day, people are waking up in Washington and the state capitals around the country, accentuating the opportunities for individuals and families to be successful so that we can confront some of the fiscal challenges facing Washington. Right. And uh, just for for tax purposes, when we refer to the Trump boom, we speak about the Trump uh, blue collar boom in generic terms. This isn't an endorsement of President Trump uh, on this podcast, but uh, we'll leave that discussion for another time. On behalf of DC EKG, I'm Joe Grogan. And uh, with my good friend, Eric Gillen. Eric, thanks again for a great tutorial about what's going on on Capitol Hill. 
Joe, thank you very much. And for survivorsforsolutions.org, along with Big Wig Media and our distribution partner, Evergreen, click, listen, subscribe, DCEKG, where you come for the diagnosis of what's right and what's wrong in Washington. Thanks, Joe.